It's the first one prayer or observance day of the new year. As Buddhists, we're familiar with reflecting on change, the passing of time. Old year passes, new year arrives. Obviously, this is just the conventional reality that we put on to the cycle of the earth moving around the sun, day, night. The calendar is a useful thing for us as humans, but of course every day is really a new day, new year. Every moment is a new moment of our life. Every old moment is the old year passing away. But it's traditional to make your New Year's resolution, set your goals, your aspirations. In terms of Dhamma practice, probably remains the same to abandon greed, anger and delusion. Leave that behind with the old year and to develop the path of Dhamma Vinaya, Sila Samadhi Panya, for the end of suffering. They say a Samana is one who's transcended Sangsara, the cycle of birth and death. In some circles, they refer to the Samana as the Arya Pugala, the one who's had clear insight into the path that leads directly to Nibbana. The qualities of a Samana, one who's peaceful and has unwavering confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the teachings. one who's on their way out of this cycle of birth and death because they've transcended it, seen the nature of life as impermanent, unsatisfactory and without self. <coughs> we are following in the footsteps of all the samanas, disciples of the Buddha, And if we're really intent on liberating our minds from suffering, then we use every aspect of the life as a training. Body, speech and mind. In one sense, every aspect of the life is a meditation, part of the practice of cultivating this mind in the direction that leads to the end of suffering. So the cultivation of the mind is what meditation is. 
every, every aspect, every part of this life is dedicated to that. So whether it's the beginning of some chant or ceremony, we chant Putang Sarananga Chami, I take refuge in the Buddha or the Dhamma or the Sangha, or even our day of ordination as a bhikkhu. We take the precepts, the ten precepts of a Samanera. It's Bhutang Sarananga Chami. It's so common we get used to it, but it's a meditation in itself. You could say our first meditation object as bhikkhus, even before we're given the Panchakamatana, the five body contemplations. It's actually Buddhanusati, Dhammanusati, Sankhanusati, recollecting, recollecting the qualities of the Buddha, recollecting the qualities of the Dhamma, recollecting the qualities of the Sangha. It's a good way of looking at your own practice and how much commitment to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha do you have? Do you take refuge in the Buddha, his teachings, the qualities of the Arya Sangha, the Vinaya, the Dhamma that leads to the arising of insight into the practice? How much are we committed to that? Is that really the direction, the aspiration of our life as bhikkhus? Do we have more commitment than last year? Or less? It's one way of looking at the practice. And we have to keep looking with fresh eyes because of the nature of human life is we tend to become habitual in our actions, our way of looking at things, our attitudes and views. We take things for granted, we become complacent very easily, even towards Dhamma practice, even towards the Vinaya, towards the Dhamma. So in terms of cultivating meditation and the qualities that lead to insight that liberates the mind from suffering. And the Buddha talked about the five indriya or the five bala, the five powers. He always begins with sattā, the confidence, the conviction in the teachings, in the enlightenment of the Buddha and in the path of practice that leads to enlightenment. without some confidence, conviction, then we don't really get the energy, the motivation to put effort into the practice. If we're still too skeptical, too much doubt, and then of course we won't learn the teachings, learn the meditation techniques and apply them very much. We'll tend to get distracted easily and taken up, a mind take up with more worldly pursuits easily. 
a part of our practice is establishing confidence in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha as an internal thing, not just as a a chant or a something we can just tell our friends, I'm a Buddhist or I practice as a Buddhist monk like this, like that. You know, it's whether your heart really is committed to enlightenment as a goal and to following the path that leads to enlightenment, upholding the Vinaya, investigating the Dhamma, calming your mind through the practice of meditation and developing insight. So faith is a vital ingredient in our practice. Faith, confidence, conviction. Balanced by wisdom. Because obviously in the beginning of practice we don't know everything. We'll have areas that we're not sure about in the Buddhist teachings and the path is fair enough but you also have to have enough conviction that you're willing to put effort into the practice of training in meditation keeping the Vinaya and so on so sadha or confidence faith is the fuel of the practice that leads directly to the arising of effort putting forth effort, being willing to sit meditation and walk meditation and work with your mind, even if it's not peaceful or not cooperative. Willing to practice the renunciation, the simplicity and the harmlessness of the bhikkhu life following the Vinaya. Lumpur Cha emphasized over and over again, yeah, we're practicing with these qualities of sandot, maknoi, contentment, fewness of wishes. It is a life of simplicity. The reason we're here in the forest is partly just to simplify things. Because as we know, the living in the world can be a very complex place full of information and complex relationships, people, jobs, travel and so on. All bringing us sense impressions back to our minds all the time. Sight, sound, taste, smell, touch and then all the memories and ideas and thoughts that come from them internally. Multiple sense impressions bombarding us day after day. Sometimes it's helpful to simplify things and live in a quiet place to reduce that. You never get away from it as long as you're a human being, but you can reduce it so that your mind can train in establishing mindfulness with sense impressions. So it isn't so easily overwhelmed and doesn't get caught into greed, anger and delusion, which is what sense impressions tend to stimulate when there's not much mindfulness and wisdom. They give rise to pleasant, unpleasant feelings, cravings, clinging and attachment. All our likes and dislikes. We live in a quiet place and we learn to practice contentment with what we've got. 
That's something, again, you have to put effort into appreciating the value of contentment as, a, as an experience, how easily the mind settles down in meditation when there is contentment. How easily we can live with other people if we're content. We're not seeking a lot from the world, not demanding a lot. It's easy to live as an arms mendicant without money and with hardly any possessions as if you're developing contentment. Also leads to the patience accepting that you don't always get what you want as an arms mendicant. But that's a strength of mind, to be patient with conditions that it's, we don't always have comforts or conveniences, we don't always go here and go there, get what we want. But as long as we've got enough, enough to eat, place to stay, however simple, we can be content and we can still practice. And learning to be content, learning to be patient with the conditions is a big part of our training because it has a very good effect on the mind. makes it easy for the mind to settle down, accept the way things are, be at peace, rather than always chasing after fresh experiences and new things, better things, different things, which is a great cause of human suffering. The way of craving, following that as a conditioning force, is always wanting to accumulate more, have more, more things, more experiences, know more, more knowledge, more people. And there's no end to it. Again, it takes effort to restrain that habit, because we obviously bring it into the robes with us. We have to restrain it partly through practicing patience, contentment, and then reflecting on the impermanence of it all. You know, the things we crave, the experiences we crave, whether for or against, they're impermanent, those experiences. They come and they go. <clears throat> we can't have them or cling on to them, even if we try. The more mindfulness and wisdom we apply to that, then we, we can start to be less influenced by craving, even though it's still bubbling up into our consciousness as an experience. We can recognize it for what it is, so leading to suffering, more clinging, more disappointment, more suffering. Another way, Nubhocha encouraged to practice contentment, simplicity. You're just restraining your attention, bringing your attention back, restraining it and limiting it just back to the present moment and to your body and mind in the present moment. Not always to be seeking off into the future through plans and desires and not dwelling in the past, missing things or getting upset over what's happened in the past, learning to drop the past, drop the future, 
and stay in the present moment and be content with that. You know, the heart of any meditation technique is learning to bring up present moment awareness. Breathe in, you know. Breathe out, you know. Bhutto, reciting Bhutto, you know Bhutto in the present moment. So to be content with the present moment, how you're feeling, the way your body is, the way your mind is. To learn to be comfortable within your your set of candors that you've brought along with you. The way of craving is to be never satisfied, never content, always wanting to accumulate more, have more. And one would never be content even if we accumulate all the wealth in the world, it's just that much. You can't have it for very long. It's constantly changing, disappearing on you, decaying. And you can't take it with you when you die. If you think about it, the qualities we're developing in the practice are beyond wealth and money and they're not materially based. You can't buy satha. Impossible. If somebody said they could, you wouldn't believe them. You can buy someone's loyalty to a political cause, maybe, or to some. You buy someone's favor or pay someone to work for you. But it's totally different from having faith arise that leads on to effort and energy, the arising of mindfulness and samadhi and insight into the Dhamma. That can't be bought. You can't buy satha. So this is why we call it Arya Sap, internal spiritual wealth that's beyond money. And the effect of having satha on the mind is so purifying, brightening. In Thai we say lumsai, it means like brightening the mind. People with a lot of faith often seem very bright, radiant, even if they haven't yet developed deep insight into the three characteristics of existence. Just the faith already brings up a lot of wholesome dhammas and nourishes the mind. And it's that cause for weary effort, energy to arise in the practice. Without any Conviction, you know, you sit meditation without conviction, you tend to just sit there thinking till you fall asleep or get bored or you have some pain and then get up and go away. If you have some faith, then your effort tends to be more vigorous and continuous and you're willing to put up with the obstacles. You're willing to work with painful feelings. You're willing to work with a, a mind that's not Settle down yet, easily distracted, because you have faith, you're willing to do that. If you have faith, you can keep the Vinaya, even if you're finding it a challenge. If you have faith, you can live simply in the forest. If you have faith, you can live with other people who you don't know and not related to, and so on. 
faith is the kind of groundwork, the grounding foundation of our practice. And out of that springs virya. And how do we direct our effort? We direct it to bringing up mindfulness, sati. Really, if there's consistent and continuous sati maintained in the mind, which is a wholesome quality, then greed, anger and delusion just can't find a foothold. They can't get in. So for those who like a simple approach to practice, we'll just put your effort into establishing right mindfulness and already you're on the way to Nibbana. At any time, that's where your effort is directed. Abandoning greed, anger and delusion, bringing up mindfulness. With mindfulness, then you get that firmness of mind, of samadhi. The more continuous mindfulness, the more calm and settled the mind becomes, the firmer it becomes. can concentrate so that we can really look and observe and investigate the Dhamma because the mind is calm. Sapanya can arise based on samadhi. People used to love to ask Lumpur Cha, what's the quick way to gain results in the practice, to end dukkha? He said the quick way, the shortcut is just let go, let go of everything. If your mind is just in a permanent state of letting go, with wisdom, with mindfulness, there's nothing more to do. In the way of the world, the way of craving and attachment is to cling and to accumulate. The more we have, the more we suffer. The more we cling, the more we suffer. The way of the practice is to let go of that clinging. If you cling to your body, you'll be an endless source of suffering. Aches and pains, hunger, thirst, feeling too hot, too cold getting older, things going wrong, sickness, injury. If we cling to all that, endless worries, aversion, discontent in the mind, because the nature of the body is to change all the time, from year to year. We're all a year older now, this new year. With the aging brings physical problems, degeneration, decay, and no way around that. If you're clinging and identifying with that, if there's no mindfulness, no insight, then we'll suffer. It's like the man, the layperson talking to Lumpur Cha about letting go, how to do it. I said, Lumpur Cha asked them, if you, have you ever had a stomach ache? Yeah. Have you ever had a headache? Yep. Have you got teeth? Have you ever had a toothache? Yep. Have you ever, ever had a tail ache? No, I don't have a tail, so I've never had a tail ache. And what you don't have, 
and doesn't bring you any pain and suffering. Once you become content as a samana, as a monk, already you cut out a lot of suffering. You've got no bank account to worry about, no house to worry about, no wife and kids to worry about. Already you don't have these things, you don't have to worry about them. No suffering. If you've got them, then there can be a big cause of suffering because you're clean. But even as monks, we still got our five candors to deal with. We've got a body, feelings, thoughts, memories. The idea is not to cling to them as self, to see their conditioned nature, the selfless nature. If you have enough insight to do that, even pain is just pain. Pleasure is just pleasure. It's just that much, so you don't want to get too excited by it because it's just another condition that arises and ceases. <coughs> All the pleasures you can imagine in this world don't last. And they bring with them so much dukkha, sort of hidden in, within the pleasure. It's just asking for trouble when you attach to pleasure. Your mind, the more you practice, it naturally wants more equanimity. It's like Ajahn Chah said, you, if you grab the snake, sooner or later it's going to bite you. Grabbing the snake was his way of giving a simile of clinging to both pleasure and pain. Pain is the head of the snake, so it's pretty obvious. You hold that, you'll get bitten. It'll be painful. But even if you hold the tail, eventually the head will come round and bite you. If you cling to either pleasure or pain, you'll suffer. If you can maintain your mindfulness, your awareness, your equanimity, you won't suffer. And this is where we put our effort in. You have the faith, the effort to de develop mindfulness, samadhi and then insight maintains this state of equanimity where there's more balance towards the world so you can relate to the world without bias, without attachment. You can still help people in the world but without clinging, not expecting anything from it, not wanting anything in return or expecting any particular outcome. You can accept states of suffering that come up because you know they have their cause, they've come up just have to be with them until they pass and you're not too excited or over attached to the successes and the pleasures of life either because you know they don't last either So at the beginning of a new year, it's a time to re-establish your faith in the practice, your commitment to the practice. And it's a good excuse, you could say, or a good reason to drop stuff from the past, old habits, unwholesome karma, karmic tendencies you've accumulated in the past. Now is the time to drop them, change those habits 
give up more of your greed, more of your anger, more of your worries and fears and concerns and cultivate the path. In the new year, this, you know, dedicate yourself, make the resolution to cultivate the path more intensely with more effort, to let go more than before, to cling less than before. And when our mind's caught into a state of craving and clinging, it just wants to know and be involved with everything in the world. That's the nature of craving and clinging. Wants to know everyone else's business, wants to have everything, be in control, have power, have fame, fortune, wealth, whatever it is. <coughs> That's the way of craving and clinging. In the end, it just drives us crazy. Because you're just putting all your mental energy onto all these external things. And you can never control them and really have them. So they drive you crazy. You turn your attention inwards and practice mindfully letting go. It's the way of peace. And that involves accepting the way things are, accepting karma, your karma, others' karma, but cultivating good karma. It's not a fatalistic approach either. It's not just say, oh, this is my karma. I can't do anything more than this. This is my lot in life. I'm destined to have a mind that can't be trained to be distracted or miserable or depressed or whatever is the suffering you experience. It has its causes, and that is karma, but you can change. You can change the direction of your karma every day through your, your practice. Nothing is fixed or certain. So we, tonight we can uh, do some funeral chanting for our neighbor, Don Valentine, who he died at quarter to midnight on New Year's Eve. Somebody who had an important role to play in this monastery because he was kind enough to sell us his land that we now are sitting on. And we went, the committee went to uh, ask him if he was interested in selling. At that time he hadn't, he wasn't interested in selling particularly. But within a very short space of time he agreed to sell his house and the land. So we were able to build this monastery here. So somebody we have some gratitude to. And we wish him well for his future. Next life. Monasteries are like that, places that many different people are involved with, some directly, some indirectly, some in a very constant way, some just occasionally. But the monastery couldn't be here without many different people. There's one person who was happy enough at that time when we had very little He's willing to sell his, even sell his property to us so that we could have more facilities and more land to build on. So tonight we can do some chanting for him and spread metta to him.
I'll leave you with these thoughts for your reflection. <laughs>